It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. After the podcast, check out our other episodes, all our Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more at ChristianQuestions.com. Today's topic is, Where Do the Human Soul and Spirit Go When We Die? Part 2. Coming up in this episode, the word for spirit in the Bible can be really confusing. It describes the wind, God's spirit, the human spirit, worldly influences, and even animals. How can one word apply to so many different things? We know that our human spirit is an important part of us, but what does that really mean? Now, here's Rick, Jonathan, and Julie. Welcome, everyone. I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host for over 20 years. Grateful for the privilege. And Julie, a longtime CQ contributor, is also with us. Hi, gentlemen. Thanks for having me here. Jonathan, what is our theme text for today's episode? Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In our last episode, we deeply explored the human soul. We saw that both the Old and New Testaments clearly teach that humans are souls and don't have souls. We further confirmed that the Bible is explicit about the destiny of the human soul being death, as that was the irrevocable penalty for sin given to Adam at the beginning. As surprising as all this might sound, it is all verified in Scripture. We're now going to consider the human spirit. What is it? Is it a tangible being, or or is it an intangible essence? Is it a life force all of its own? Is it the same as the soul? Is the human spirit immortal, or can it die? These are complex questions, and as with the soul, the answers can be found in the Bible, but only, but only if we are careful to consider both the Old and New Testament records together. So folks, as we pick up with part two of where do the human soul and spirit go when we die, we want to just set the same groundwork that we began part one with. So once again, here are the basic elements of the soul and spirit, the life and death questions. The human soul, Genesis 2, 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. We have seen that the Bible clearly labeled man as a soul. In part one, we established a body plus the breath of life equals a living creature called a soul. Man became a living soul. He was not given a soul. Okay. We Next. see the human spirit in Zechariah 12:1 that says the burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundations of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. So here the Bible seems to define the human spirit as formed within each person, and the word spirit there is the Hebrew word ruach. Strong's Exhaustive Concordance number 7307 Its primary significance or root meaning is wind by resemblance breath that is a sensible or even violent exhalation. The human soul and spirit can be divided. Hebrews 4.12 For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
the Bible does show us significant differences between soul and spirit. We see the Bible tells us God has a spirit, and we're going to start our discussion here with Genesis 1, 1 1-2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the spirit, there's our Old Testament Ruach again, the spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Okay, so we've got these basic elements. We've this whole soul and spirit two part series: the human soul, the human spirit, human soul and spirit, and then God having a spirit. The word for spirit is a big word, and it needs a lot of explanation. As a matter of fact, ruach—that's the Old Testament word, like Julie, like you said, the word for spirit in the Old Testament—is used three hundred and forty-eight times. In the Old Testament. It's got a variety of meanings in different contexts. So it doesn't have a simple little meaning. You'd mentioned wind and, and, and unseen uh, force and so forth. So we're going to break down a little bit about what we are going to be uncovering as we go through this podcast. When talking about God's Ruach, God's Spirit, it is the unseen and powerful moving influences that He as Creator of all has and can apply anywhere He chooses. God's Spirit is His invisible power and influence, in other words. Well, when talking about the natural earth, Ruach depicts wind and power, the unseen yet movable forces of nature. When talking about animals, their Ruach is the drive of their instincts that move and protect them. When talking about humanity's Ruach, it's our unseen drive, focus, and influence. And we'll focus on the human spirit shortly. Okay, so we've got, we've touched on, just given a brief overview of God's Ruach spirit, na- spirit or wind in nature, uh, animals, and humanity. So let's focus in, Julie, like you said, you quoted Genesis 1, 1 to 2, focus in on a few examples, uh, Old Testament examples, of God's spirit in action. First, God's spirit was the moving force in creation, Genesis chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the spirit, Ruach, of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. So you imagine the power of God moving over the surface of the waters, and God speaks, and his power brings what he spoke into reality. So that's a a, a sense of God's spirit uh, as the moving force of creation. Next point, God's spirit can give humans exceptional skill and understanding. Jonathan, Exodus 35, 30 to 31. Then Moses said to the sons of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezazel, the son of Uri, and the son of Hare, and the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the spirit, Ruach, of God, in wisdom, in understanding, and in knowledge, and in all craftsmanship. Bezalel received miraculous skills in the service of building the tabernacle in the wilderness. And boy, I'll tell you, I, I, every time I think of him, I think I want his hands. I want, to, sure. I want to be able to create like he did. I used to build fine furniture. And, you know, the, the idea of carving a piece of wood and, you know, there's such intricacy. And to know what he knew because God's spirit moved him, it's just, it blows me away. So uh, we, we've got that example of humans having exceptional skill and understanding. Next example, God's spirit guided the prophets to properly represent his will. Isaiah fifty nine twenty one. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit, Ruach, which is upon you, 
My words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. The Holy Spirit guided and directed God's prophets by inspiring them to write or speak words that they generally didn't understand. The meanings of these writings were often revealed in the New Testament meant for us to study and understand now. So God's spirit and his unseen power and influence over all things in the natural as well as the spiritual realm. We're we're getting a, a big picture of that. Well, just as the wind has power, which itself is unseen, but its results are obvious, so God's influence is also unseen, yet its results are undeniable. In Old Testament times and before Jesus' baptism, there was really a more mechanical operation of God's Spirit during that time of creation, and it gave miraculous abilities for specific and limited purposes. The prophets didn't have God's Spirit dwelling within them like the Christians of the New Testament. So what we're seeing in the Old Testament are several ways that God's Spirit worked, and we focused on, a, on, on several ways that it worked with humans because this is an important aspect of trying to understand spirit in humanity, which we'll get to very, very shortly. Let's right now go to ruach or spirit, the word for spirit in nature. There are many Old Testament uses of ruach as some form of wind. We're just going to look at two, two very different examples. Jonathan first, Genesis 3, verse 8. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool ruach of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. So it's really interesting to me that, and I never knew this before, that the word, the cool of the day, that's the word for ruach. And you think, how could that be? Well, the cool breeze, you know, it might have a hot day, and then you have that cool breeze that's so refreshing. So in the ruach, the cool breeze of the day, they hear the the voice of God walking in the garden. What, What a connection, but that's the word ruach in relation to nature in a very, very calming, happy way. Now let's look at ruach in relation to nature in not such a happy way. First Kings chapter 19, verse 11. So he said, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by and a great strong wind, ruach, was rending the mountain and breaking it in pieces and the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, Ruach. And after the wind, Ruach, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. So in this vision of Elijah, he's standing on this mountain and this incredible wind comes and it rends the mountains and breaks in pieces the rocks. Talk about something incredibly powerful. And it goes on to say, but the Lord wasn't in that. But the point is, that's the word. The cool of the day, the breeze, the harsh wind that breaks things, the wind, same word, ruach, same word for God's spirit. So in nature, in these two examples, in these two scriptures, ruach depicts wind and power. Very simply, just like the definition says, unseen and yet moving forces of nature. So as we wrap up this introduction to the spirit. We haven't talked about human spirit yet. That's coming up uh, next. But Jonathan, we're looking at, we're preparing the foundation for the human spirit in a biblical perspective. So what do we have so far? Well, the highest form of spirit we see in the Bible is God's spirit. It is his mighty power, influence, and focus that can guide and change things. His spirit is aptly described by the same word for wind, 
this unseen force can reshape landscapes as well as gentle cool and can gently cool you in the heat of the day. So God's spirit is this big, big, strong power that's unseen that creates and that moves and changes things. Same word used for natural wind. So the thing is, using the same word to describe God's spirit and wind really is eye-opening. It ends up being all about unseen power. God's spirit is all-powerful. How does the human spirit compare with its power, focus, and influence? Well, man was created in God's own image. This would imply that our spirit would in some small and very inferior way have similarities to God's spirit. To set this comparison in place, we want to first explore some of the few scriptures that talk about the Ruach, the spirit, in the animal creation. But before we get too far, Rick, let me introduce a second less used Hebrew word for breath, neshama. So neshama, this is the Strong's Exhaustive Concordance number 5397, and it means a puff, that is wind, angry or vital breath, divine inspiration, intellect, or an animal. Okay, so neshama, keep that in mind, but, but, but let's start with Ruach. We've got Neshema as a basis that we're going to be uh, referring to. Let's start with Ruach in both animals and humans. So Jonathan, let's go to uh, Genesis six seventeen. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. Well, the word for breath in breath of life is Ruach. But let's go back to the first scripture we read today, Genesis 2-7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. But the word for breath in the breath of life here is neshama, not ruach. Further, when, rendering, when referring to both animals and men, Genesis 7-22 says, All in whose nostrils was the breath of life, of all that was in the dry land died. The word for breath here is also neshama, not ruach. Why the difference? Is neshama or breath interchangeable with ruach or breath? Okay, so we've got these two words, and both of them seem to say and mean the same thing, but they don't. That neshama, a word that, Julie, you defined earlier, is, is really a puff, a wind. And the word ruach is used for something bigger, something... Uh, afterwards. So when it's when it talks about the breath of life and it uses the word neshama, you've got the idea of the the vitality that brings one to life. When you talk about the breath or uh, uh, and and it may be translated ruach, you're talking about something that is a result of that life, that living soul. So they are very different in their application even though in a way they they sound like they mean the same thing. And we're going to develop this as we go further in to our, our discussion, and specifically as we look at, at the use uh, with, with animals and so forth moving forward. Okay, so that means that both human and animals receive neshama, the initial breath of life, that act of breathing, and they both are then described as having ruach, the animated power to be either an animal or a man. Right, so they both receive the breath of life to begin, but ruach is as a result of the breath of life in man and animal. 
Okay. So we can see how Ruach goes beyond that vitalizing power of just breathing, that first breath. The following psalm refers to creatures like birds, cattle, goats, and lions. Psalm 104, 29 to 30. You hide your face. They are dismayed. You take away their spirit, Ruach, and they expire and return to the dust. And you send forth your spirit, Ruach, and they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. So we've got this scripture, and it's talking about the animal kingdom. You take away their spirit, their ruach, and they're going to expire. You take away that, that drive, their instincts, their, the, the things that make an animal do what an animal does, and they're going to die. You send forth your spirit, God's spirit, God's ruach, and they are created. So through the power of God, the animal kingdom is created. The animal kingdom has a spirit essentially that sense of, 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 um, of instinct to be able to do the things they, they need to do. If that is gone, obviously animals die. One other scripture that uh, talks about the animal kingdom, Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 3, verses 20 to 21. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit, Ruach, rises upward, and if the spirit, Ruach, of the animal goes down into the earth. Now, that's kind of an interesting scripture. It's like, okay, what do you mean? One goes up and one goes down. What are we talking about? Well, perhaps this is a reference back to creation. Remember, the scripture said that the earth brought forth the animal creation. And the spirit, Ruach, their drive and their instincts of animals, returns from whence the animal came to the earth. The earth brought it forth and it goes back. Man was directly created by God. And man's Ruach, man's spirit, his drive, his influence will be retained by God. And that's a very important word we're going to get back to a little bit later. So, Jonathan, I'm going to take your initial equation that you made and expand it a little bit. We've got body plus breath, neshama, the breath of life, equals a live creature called a soul. But the breath, Ruach, is a result of the soul, the outgrowth of the soul. That equals the spirit of a creature. Yes, absolutely. So Neshama is at the very beginning. Ruach is a result of. That's what we've got. And the animal kingdom has it as well. And that's the amazing thing is you see this word being used in all of these different ways and they all make great sense once you put it into its proper meaning with each application. So now with that in mind, let's now look at the human spirit in a biblical perspective. Spirit in animals is all about their drive and instincts. God built this into them as an outgrowth of their natural being. Their spirit gives us a basic foundation for understanding our own human spirit. So understanding the animal kingdom is an introduction, a basic introduction to understanding human, the human spirit. So now let's take a look at that, Ruach in humanity. And we're going to go through just a few of many, many, many Old Testament examples of Ruach, spirit, in humanity. Well, I'll start us off. I know that the human spirit can be sorrowful. In 1 Samuel 1.15, it says, And Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. And that word sorrowful spirit is ruach. So the human spirit can feel sorrow. You know, our energy can be sorrowful because of things that have happened to us. What's next? The human spirit can be a worthy example to imitate 
2 Kings 2, 9. And it came to pass, when they were gone over, that Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. And Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit, uh, that's Ruach, be upon me. So I, I love this scripture because Elijah is finishing is finished his work, and Elisha is going to be uh, picking up where Elijah left off. And as they are getting ready to part from one another, Elisha says to Elijah, because Elijah was such a powerful influence for God in Israel, he stood. He was the one who stood against the 450 prophets of Baal all by himself. And Elisha is saying, I pray, let a double portion of, of, of that, that drive, that power that wants to follow God, let that be, a double portion be in me so I can pick this up and really run with it. And it really shows you how the human spirit is something that when it is God-driven can be something worth imitating, worth wanting, worth developing. What's next? The human spirit can be deflated, 1 Kings 10, 4-5, when the queen of Sheba perceived all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his servants, the attendance of his waiters and their attire, his cupbearers and his stairway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit, Ruach, in her. So that expression, there was no more spirit in her, corresponds to an expression in our day. It just took her breath away. There was nothing more to say. Solomon's wisdom and prosperity was more than she had expected. And, you know, I, I love the way this scripture describes it. She sees all of these things, and it even talks about the stairway by which he went up to the house of the Lord. Now, I don't know what that stairway looked like, but she looked at it, and it's like, this man does have the greatest wisdom of anyone who's ever lived. And she's, I got nothing. I got nothing. I, <laughs> she even liked what the waiters were wearing. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you see, the, the human spirit can be deflated because she was going there basically to say, you know, let me, let, me, let me match wits with this King Solomon and see what happens. And she sees all of this as like, nope, can't do that. So you see, the human spirit can, can, can be excitable and then, oh, oh, never mind. <laughs> but w- what else? Well, the human spirit can be inspired to godly acts. Ezra 1, verses 1 through 3. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord stirred up the spirit, and that's Ruach, of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, saying, The Lord, the God of heaven, has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, let's understand, Cyrus is not from Israel. He's not a Jew, and yet God stirred up his human spirit so he would stand for the Jewish people in a way unheard of before this. And he is inviting them, build a house to God in Jerusalem. I'm here to help you. So you can see his spirit was inspired to godly acts, his, his desire, his focus, his motiv- motivation, and his influence, because he's king, his desire is, is, is focusing on godly things to do. It's, it's just an inspiring example of what the human spirit actually has within it. What else? Uh, the human spirit can grow faint and ponder. We see that in Psalm 77, 2 to 3, and then 5 and 6. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. My soul refused to be comforted. When I remember God, then I am disturbed. 
When I sigh, then my spirit, Ruach, grows faint, Selah. I've considered the days of old. I will remember my song in the night. I will meditate with my heart and my spirit, Ruach, ponders. So you look at this scripture, when I sigh, my spirit grows faint. My focus, my energy, it it goes faint because I'm struggling with a lot of things. Does that sound familiar to anybody? And then he says, I will meditate uh, in, in the night. I'll meditate with my heart and my spirit ponders. My, now, now my focus is going to start asking the questions and looking at the, the goodness of God and saying, wait, there's something here that's bigger. So even though I may feel faint, the same human spirit can be revived by focusing on things that are above. So this spirit is the outgrowth of who we are. It's the outgrowth of our human life. Uh, we've got two more. What's next, Jonathan? The human spirit can be impatient. Proverbs 14, 29. He that is slow to wrath is of great understanding, but he that is hasty of spirit, Ruach, exalteth folly. Okay. Has your human spirit ever been impatient? I yes. Think- <laughs> I just say, I think I know the answer, but you didn't let me say it. (laughs) And see, this is something, what these scriptures are doing, they're describing our humanity, our drive, our our, our focus, our discipline, uh, our motivation. And our motivation goes all over the place, and impatience is part of that. One last example, and there are many, many more. Uh, Julie, what's this last example? The human spirit can search for the Lord, and we see that in Isaiah 26, 9. At night my soul longs for you. Indeed, my spirit, Ruach, within me seeks you diligently. For when the earth experiences your judgments, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. I notice here we've got at night my soul, that was the word nephesh that we learned in part one, and my spirit, Ruach. What's the difference between soul and spirit here? That's a, that's a good question. My soul seeks you diligently. I, my, my soul longs for you, rather, and my spirit will seek you diligent, diligently. It, it's, like, it, it's like being hungry. When you're hungry, your physical, your person craves food. You just like, I got to eat. Just if you feel it, your 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 being knows it wants to eat, and what your spirit, your drive does is you go find the food. Now maybe you have to go buy it, you know. Maybe you have to go pick it from the garden. I don't know, but your 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 spirit is gonna your your influence, your motivation, your discipline is gonna drive you to go get that food. So that's the difference. So when we look at this at night, my soul, my very life longs for you, my Father in heaven. My spirit seeks you diligently. So my life is kind of feeling empty and longs for God. And then I will apply myself to seek you diligently in the darkness of that night. It's a beautiful picture of what we feel and then what we do about how we feel. That's the soul and the spirit all together. We speak of people having a gentle spirit, a kind spirit, or an angry spirit or mood and a bitter spirit. The spirit describing mankind in general is either with reference to this breath of life, the animating spark, which God first gave to Adam and his posterity, the neshama, an invisible power or quality, or second, the spirit of the mind, the will, the invisible power that controls the life, the ruach. And we can see that this word has no reference to immortality, but simply refers to vitality, life power. Yeah, and that's a great way to put it. Vitality, life power, drive, motivation. So now that we've begun to define the human spirit from an Old Testament perspective, Jonathan, how can we sum this up? 
The human spirit is an outgrowth of the human soul. It is the energy, motivation, focus, and influence of the soul's existence. It is intangible in the sense that you cannot touch it, yet it is tangible in the sense of it being able to touch you by way of inspiration, passion, and memory. So it's not that physical thing, but it can still touch you. We've all been touched by inspiration. We've all been touched by memory. We've all been touched by by the passion to do something. So that gives us a sense of the human spirit in action as defined in the Old Testament. So looking at the human spirit through the lens of the Old Testament gives us a powerful view of how we are wonderfully made. We now have a powerful Old Testament view of the human spirit. How does this view translate in the New Testament? As we discussed in our last episode, we cannot truly understand any basic doctrine of the Bible unless we consider the Bible as a whole to describe it. Doing this requires crossing a language barrier between the Old and New Testaments. This becomes easy when we find the Old Testament verses translated into the Greek of the New Testament. In part one of this series, our bridge for the word soul was from the Old Testament nephesh to the Greek word suke, and we found it by Jesus quoting the Hebrew word into Greek. So now, here's an Old Testament to New Testament bridge for Ruach. Psalm 31, 45, 4-5 is where we find it in the Old Testament. You will pull me out of the net, which they have secretly laid for me. For you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. Ruach, you have ransomed or redeemed me, O Lord, God of truth. So in Psalm 31, you have the psalmist prophetically speaking, and he's speaking about Jesus. He's speaking about Jesus here. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. So he's speaking about the, the power, the influence, the drive in, in, in humanity. That's what he's talking about in the Old Testament. Now Jesus quotes that verse in the New Testament, on the cross, as he is about to die. Luke 23, 46. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. The Greek word for spirit, pneuma, is the Strong's Exhaustive Concordance 4151. According to Jesus' words, pneuma is the equivalent of the Old Testament word ruach. Pneuma means a current of air that is breath, blast, or a breeze. And we're familiar with this word in English. For example, bicycle and car tires are pneumatic. They have a solid rubber surface, but they are filled with air. Now, some Bibles mistranslate our English word spirit as ghost. And I looked into this The King James Version, for example, was translated at a time when superstition was rampant, and the word ghost would command a great deal more respect and reverence than it does today, because back in those days, ghosts were very real in the minds of most people and very mysterious, and they were always associated with the thought of a personality. And so the translators, believing in a personal Holy Spirit, conceived the idea of calling it a holy ghost. But so far, we have see nothing indicating that an entity's spirit is a separate being. 
So this is an important aspect of this, the, the, our whole picture. We've looked a lot at the Old Testament, and now we've crossed a bridge into the New Testament. And we know we're using the right word because Jesus quotes the Old Testament verse. So we've got the appropriate word to build the discussion upon. And so we're going to focus on that word and see how it, it, it in fact, exactly fits the way the Old Testament did. Now, many of us as, as Christians might say, oh, no, 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 it's very different in the New Testament. It's a different thing. Folks, truth doesn't change from Old Testament to New Testament. And I think we touched on this last week a little bit. You know, there's certain things, you know, you can change the need to follow the law versus the, you know, the letter of the law versus the spirit law. Sure, that can change. But when you've got the basics of life, once they're set in the Old Testament, that's a solid foundation. The New Testament simply builds on that foundation and expands it, but it doesn't change it. So let's look. As with the Old Testament, we're going to touch on God's Spirit first, and then see how the New Testament defines the spirit of men. So, so, so God's Spirit first, just a few scriptures. Oh, God's Spirit was with Jesus from the moment his ministry began, and that's John one thirty-two. And John bare record saying, I saw the spirit, Numa, descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. So, you know, we see that, and it's a beautiful picture, this, this beautiful picture. He comes up out of the water of baptism, and God's spirit in, in, in the form of a dove descends upon him. And it's an outward manifestation that God's power and influence would rest upon Jesus through his ministry. It's a very powerful symbol that sounds simple and it sounds beautiful, like, like oh, that'd be a great little postcard. No, this is a great marker for how Jesus could do and would do the things that he, he would do. N n another example of God's Spirit. Here's a really important one. God's Spirit strengthens us to subdue our flesh and leads us to sonship. Romans eight thirteen to 16. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit, Numa, you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit, Numa, of God, these are sons of God. So here, you know, we've got this life and death scenario. And it basically is saying God's Spirit strengthens us to bring us to sonship. Without God's Spirit, we don't have the opportunity for the life that we're called to in Jesus. It wouldn't work. It couldn't work. So we see that God's Spirit is integral in the life of a true Christian to have that Spirit dwelling within us to bring us up out of death. We have to work with it. We have to follow it. We can sabotage it. We can do all kinds of different things. But bottom line is God's Spirit is there to drive us, to help us, and we need to cooperate with it. It strengthened us to subdue our flesh, to lead us to sonship. What else? Oh, I'm sorry. Wait, wait. Hang on. Before we go to what else, we just read just what first two verses of Romans 8, 13 to 16. Okay, so in these verses, it, it's broken up into three parts. The first part focuses on God's Spirit, uh, Julie, like you said, bringing us to sonship. The next part of this verse compares other spirits, other powers, other motivations and focuses. So Jonathan, let's go to uh, Romans 8 verse 15. For you have not received a spirit, Numa, of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit, Numa, of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So now this introduces the spirit of slavery. 
Now, the spirit of slavery is the power of slavery, the influence of slavery. It's not a personality. It is a power. It's an influence. And what this is saying is you're not slaves to sin any longer. You are now adopted as sons of God. So we have this word for spirit, pneuma, describing other influences that can come into our lives, and we'll expand that a little bit further. God's spirit is a testimony that we are prospective sons. So we're going to continue with verse 16 from Romans 8. The spirit, pneuma, itself testifies with our spirit, pneuma, that we are children of God. So here you have a beautiful combination of two things. God's spirit testifies with our spirit. The two can work together. And that is something that, folks, as Christians, we need to truly understand that our strength, our power, our focus, our motivation has to work in line with God's Spirit for it to be powerful uh, in, in our lives. This is, the, this is the spirit of slavery versus the spirit of adoption. These, these are two contrary influences and that are able to sway us with, with their power, but our spirit can work with God's Spirit. And just a quick word, Jonathan, in that you read the pneuma, the Spirit itself testifies. Some Bible translations assign the personal pronouns of himself, he, and him to describe pneuma, even though the neuter pronouns of it and itself are grammatically correct, because pneuma in the Greek isn't a masculine or feminine word. So the human spirit can be directed to serve God, Romans 1.9. For God, whom I serve in my spirit, pneuma, in the preaching of the gospel of his son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. And uh, I have a, a personal story about the human spirit and how it can affect others, and kind of by team spirit. I was at a high school football game my senior year, and our team was being killed. <laughs> and we're just sitting on Aww. the bleachers with all the, the senior guys sitting there, and it was quiet. No one's doing anything. And I turned around and said, I'm bored. I said, I said you know, let's do something about this. And I said, let's get crazy, follow my lead. And we started <laughs> chanting the best football running back that we had, his name over and over again. And all of a sudden the team's looking back off the bleachers, looking at what's going on, what's going on. The guy we're, we're chanting is looking over saying, what, you're talking about me? And the coach <laughs> was not playing him in the game. So finally the coach handed the ball to him. He made it 30 yards down the field. The second play, he got a touchdown. We went nuts. It was crazy. <laughs> ah. And then the defense got on and we started chanting about the big guys in the front line to stop them from going any further. We got the ball right back and we started chanting the, the running back's name. He went, that took about five plays, scored again. The, we were going crazy. We didn't have enough time to win the game, but it sure changed. And the music teacher was sitting right nearby us. He walked over and said, you know, you changed this game. And, wow. and, and that, see, that is a powerful representation of human spirit. It is your, the, the attitude that you can impart to others by belief and by expression can change things. And that's really what this, the human spirit is. And this helps us to see it in a very big way. And, you know, in this scripture in Romans 1, 9, it says, For God, whom I serve in my spirit, in the preaching of the gospel. The Apostle Paul is saying, I am applying who I am, what I am, what I have to give, I'm applying it to serve God. I serve God with my energy, my focus, my motivation. This is how faithfulness happens. We don't just, it doesn't just come to us. We have to apply ourselves 
through our human spirit. What else? Uh, God's spirit searches all things, while the spirit of man searches the things of man. Each time spirit is mentioned in this verse, the word is pneuma. And that's going to be, oh yeah, you've got the first Corinthians 2, 10 to 12. Good. But to us, did God reveal them through his spirit? For the spirit, all things doth search, even the depths of God. For who of men hath known the things of man except the spirit of the man that is in him? So also the things God, no one hath known except the spirit of God. And we, the spirit of the world, did not receive, but the spirit that is of God, that we may know the things conferred by God on us. Man, you said spirit too many times. <laughs> and see, here, here's the thing. What this verse is doing is it's, it's comparing the spirit of God to the spirit of man to the spirit of the world. Now, the spirit of the world, again, is, it's the spirit of an intangible thing, but you've got the power and influence of God, and we're focusing on the power and influence of man. And the, the, the crux of this scripture is God's power can examine all things, spiritual, all things of God, we as human beings are stuck. We can only examine the little world that we live in. And so it's showing us that we're small. We have capacity, but we're small. The spirit of the world can bring us down. The spirit of God can bring us up. But we have to apply our motivation to all of that. Real quick, it's interesting to see. I wonder what the spiritual game changer could be. <laughs> Just like Jonathan's game, what, what could we do to make it, to make it even more dramatic with God? And, and, you know, you, you think about that and you think, okay, there's, there's, a, there's a powerful thought in the idea of resurrection. I think that's the spiritual game changer. I think that's okay. the shout to say, get up and go, because now there's this personal miracle. Uh, and so yeah. that, that will stimulate the human spirit at the appropriate time. So we see the function of the Holy Spirit did change over time. Remember in the Old Testament, we said it was more mechanical, used for creation, and it gave certain individuals specific miraculous talents. It guided the prophets to speak words they didn't understand. But in the New Testament and today, it motivates, it helps, it comforts, inspires, and guides dedicated Christians. So back to the human spirit, though. The human spirit can be fearful, 2 Timothy 1.7. For God has not given us a spirit, pneuma, of timidity or fear, but of power and love and discipline. You know, it's much more fun to talk about God's spirit because, you know, it's, it's so lofty and ours is so up and down. We can have timidity, fear in our, in our human spirit. And, and God works with us anyway. So he takes that brokenness and said, you can, you can grow, you can be better, you can apply yourself more fully. What's, what's another example of the human spirit? The human spirit can be better used of God if it's humble. Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Numa, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in that self-spirit, the poor in ego, that's another part of the human spirit. It can drive you down the wrong road. We can have motivation or we can have ego. Blessed are the poor in ego, human spirit, because it, uh, you're, you're more likely to be able to grab hold of God's kingdom. What else? The uplifting news is that the human spirit can have godly desire, Matthew 26, 40 to 41. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit, Numa, is willing, but the flesh is weak. And that's such a—oh, uh, hang, hang on, Jonathan. Just, just want to say that's such a great example 
a great example of what the human spirit is. Peter wanted to be there with his Lord every single step of the way, but he fell asleep. His spirit was willing. His desire was there, but his flesh was just too weak. And Jesus knew and understood that, loved him, and later forgave him for all of these things that went wrong. Isn't it interesting how both the Holy Spirit and our spirit are both pneuma? Why? Because we are made in God's image. Amen. So we need to be careful to choose which spirits, which influences, which powers, which motivations we listen to. A good scripture on this is 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, pneuma, but test the spirits, pneuma, to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit, Numa of God. Every spirit, Numa that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit, Numa that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit, Numa of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. Manifestations of the spirit of Satan are described as the spirit of fear, the spirit of bondage, the spirit of the world, spirit of error and divination, the spirit of Antichrist, and the spirit of slumber. So again, those are not, those are things, not people, not animals, not beings. The spirit of slumber is the power, the influence of, I'm just too tired. You know, the the spirit of, of, of fear is, I can't, I can't, I can't. So what we want to do is understand spirit has these wide breadth of meanings, but the human spirit, that's what we're focusing on, is that power and influence that we individually have. So Jonathan, wrapping this up, the human spirit in a biblical perspective. The New Testament builds exactly on the Old Testament foundation. New Testament focus is heaven upon God's spirit influencing and guiding the early church. Our human spirit is clearly represented as an outgrowth of the human soul. It is the energy, motivation, focus, and influence of the soul's existence. We need to understand clearly, this is how the scriptures define the human spirit. It's those things that grow out of our lives that we apply ourselves to. So it is inspiring to see how well the scriptures regarding the human spirit fit together. So now let's apply what we've learned. With a clear biblical view of what the human spirit is, we now ask, what happens to it when we die? Because our human spirit is clearly represented as an outgrowth of the human soul, we need to look at the answer to the life or death question regarding it in a philosophical way. Nowhere have we read in scripture that our human spirit is its own life force. If it's not its own life force, well then... How can it die? Well, Rick, because it wasn't alive, it's not its own entity. Right, and that's a that's something that the scriptures are very plain about when we look at how they're, this word is used in the Old and New Testament, but sometimes we miss it. But let me bring up something that I think is important. Those who believe that we have been imparted with some um, immortal spark of divinity that never dies, point to this next scripture in Ecclesiastes 12, 7. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit, Ruach, will return to God who gave it. The argument is it's Adam's body that was judged to go back to the original elements. So the body became dust, but the spirit, the life force, went back to God. It isn't specifically told that it gets extinguished, 
So therefore it lives on forever. This is one reason some people believe that that spirit and soul, immortal soul, immortal spirit are interchangeable and they don't die. So, you know, look, there's a, there's a lot to that, but, but if you go back through the scriptures that we just went through, and we went through a lot of scriptures today, what you see is the spirit, the human spirit and human soul are not interchangeable. The spirit grows out of it. You have spirit and soul in how many different scriptures? And the other thing is, you know, the idea that, well, it's just the body that goes, goes back to the, the, the earth. That's not what God said. God said, from dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. If we're going to quote scripture, let's quote it accurately. There's no evidence, Julie. I, I respect the fact that, you, that, that there are those who, who believe in those things, but there is no scriptural evidence along those lines. So let's well, again, just because it says the spirit will return to God who gave it doesn't mean, again, that spirit's not alive in order to die, what Jonathan just said. So, so what we have to do here is we have to figure out exactly what that means. And it's not that hard to do. Let's go back to Scripture. Let's go with what we know, and then we'll come to a conclusion. So we're going to come back to Ecclesiastes 12.7 in just a couple of minutes here. What do we know? We know that God uniquely created humanity. Back to Genesis, Genesis 1.26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Genesis clearly states that man was created at the hand of God. On the other hand, we know from Genesis 2.19 that the animals were formed out of the ground and not in the image of God. We explain the image of God in part one. Humanity was created to have dominion over the earth, to be thinking moral creatures like God. We are able to make decisions, have emotions, and have dominion. So there's a tremendous description here about being created in the image of God. It, it doesn't mean to—it's not a look-alike contest. It is a be-alike contest. That's what it means, being in the image of God. God has this powerful spirit that moves things. We are given that as well. We also know that unlike the animal creation, humanity is directly created uh, by God. And again, we're going to read the scripture one more time, Genesis 2-7. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed in his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And that's different than the animal creation. And Jonathan, just to add one more detail before we get back to Ecclesiastes 12.7, the creation of Eve was also a uniquely direct creation of God, Genesis 2.22. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. So... Back to that, the spirit, the will, whatever people look at, say, okay, that is, is going to be returned to God. That is not an entity. But what, so, so let, let's look at this. What does, it, what does it mean when it says the dust will return to the earth and the spirit will return to God who gave it? God directly created human life in his image. When we die, the human spirit is the marker of that life. All those things we talked about. Our lives are lived through applying that spirit, that motivation, that focus, and that influence. Our spirit is the fingerprint of our unique life. It is the life resume of each individual. And this is what goes back to God. This isn't a magical part of us that didn't die. We think of our fingerprints as being unique to us. But do you know that our ears are so unique that biometric studies have shown up to 99.6% accuracy when ears are scanned using computer software. 
That is the same accuracy as fingerprints. And even identical twins don't have identical eyes. Our tongues and teeth are unique to us as well. Psalm 139.14 says in part, I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That is amazing. I had no idea that we had so many individual parts to us. So where does our spirit go when we die? And we might imagine a person's character and personality in a very easy way. Think of your files on a computer. We copy our files to the cloud, a powerful memory system that keeps files safe. But there is an even more powerful cloud that exists with unlimited storage, and that's God's perfect mind. It allows him to recreate and resurrect the identical character and personality of everyone who has ever lived and died, and that will happen in his perfect future kingdom. And, you know, you think about that, and we talk about the, the, the cloud that everybody talks about. God's memory is not a cloud. It is a bright light. And so it's the opposite of the human cloud that we've created. It's bigger. It's more magnificent, just like you said. And that's what we're talking about. The memory, the contribution that we have made in our lives goes back to God. And, and, and you know, uh, the next scripture we're going to go over really, really sets this up, Jonathan. Well, remember that bridge between the Old Testament uh, Ruach and the New Testament Numa? Jesus quoted Psalm 31, 4 and 5 when he told God in Luke 23, 46, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit and breathe his last breath. Well, in other words, here is the sum total of my life. Jesus needed to be brought back from death. He was given God his fingerprint, the cloud file of his entire life, every fiber of his being. As Stephen was being stoned, he did the same thing in Acts 7, 59 and 60. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. So... Stephen essentially is ready to die, and he looks up and and he says, and he sees this vision of Jesus before him, and he says, receive my spirit. Just take what I have offered to in, in following in your footsteps. This is what my life is. And such a beautiful picture of the goodness of God's plan and, and the the grace that maintains, like Julie, like you said before, the individual identity of every single human being. Okay, so what about, let's go on to the next piece. What about dividing of soul and spirit? What, what does that mean? Hugh, uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 10 to 12, says something that's kind of a little bit difficult to explain until you get into it. Jonathan, Hebrews 4, 10 to 12. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So what does this mean, the division of soul and spirit? Well, the context of this verse is to enter, entering into the rest of God. This requires our physical lives to be submissive to God's spirit within us. So we're going to suggest to you that the word spirit here, the pneuma here in this verse, is God's spirit, not the human spirit, being submissive to God's spirit within us. When we apply God's word to our lives, it says the word of God is 
living and active and so forth. And when we apply that word to our lives, it can show us our very core. It can show us our carnality versus our spirituality. It can show us our human life, our soul. It can show us what that is and how wretched it is in contrast to the spirit working within us. And I think that's brought out in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So when we look at the, that verse, we, we see that we have to adhere to God's spirit with our spirit in our lives, dividing between our human life and God's spirit. I think that's what that verse is really focusing on, Hebrews 4, 10 to 12. So now let's go to another scripture that some some people look at and say, okay, well, this could be a problem. Finally, what, what about the preserving of soul, spirit, and body all at once? That's mentioned in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Okay, so that's First Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24, and it talks about preserving your spirit and soul and body complete up to the coming of Jesus. Now, what does the apostle mean? He seems, and that's an important word, the apostle Paul seems to be wanting the spirit, soul, and body all preserved to the time of the return of the Lord Jesus. However, the Apostle Paul knew and taught that the human body decays. His supposed desire here is not scriptural. Paul taught contrary to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, spiritual life gets a spirit, spirit body, not the human body. So what's he talking about? We need to figure this out. So let's go to the context. Who is the you in, your, in this context, that, that your spirit, soul, and body may be preserved. Who is the you being spoken of? So, Jonathan, let's go to the beginning of 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers consistently bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. Okay, you is mentioned many times at the very beginning of this letter. The you here is the entire church group at Thessalonica, not an individual. Spirit, soul, and body are singular, not plural, so they're focusing on the church group as a whole and not singling out any individuals within that group. So therefore, spirit and soul have been preserved as the true church. The true church is still here and functioning as human beings. And the body, it's not the human body, it's the body of Christ. It was the whole church, it's the body of Christ. Let's read from 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 again. May your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
In other words, the apostle is praying that the true followers of Jesus serve God and witness to the truth of the gospel in unity and peace. He is not speaking to each individual uh, Christian at Thessalonica as he did not expect them to live until the time of the return of Jesus. Their physical individual bodies would not be preserved, but will return to dust. And to back that up in Acts 4.32, we read that, and the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. In Ephesians 4.4, the apostle Paul points out that there is one body and one spirit. So this means the unity. Okay, so we've put that in perspective. And folks, it comes down to understanding the context, understanding the scriptures, and putting it all in order. We are getting a good sense of the human spirit in a biblical perspective. Jonathan, last time, what have we got here? The human spirit, which is an outgrowth of the human soul, does not live on after death as it was never alive on its own in the first place, because it is the energy, focus, motivation, and influence of our lives. It becomes a record for God to hold until each individual's resurrection. All right, so Rick, I've got a last few quick questions for you in our lightning round. (laughs) The soul and the spirit are the same thing, true or false? False. They are absolutely different. Some people say we have a soul and are a spirit, true or false? We are a soul and our spirit comes out from that living soul. Where do the soul and spirit go when we die? Well, If the spirit is part of the human life, then when the soul dies, the soul that sins, it shall die, the spirit obviously, it it dies, but the memory of that spirit goes back to God. The, the, like you said, into the cloud, the, the files are stored with God of that spirit. Okay, thank you. All right, so folks, look, this is a very complex subject. There are a lot of scriptures on this subject. So the good news is that if you look at the body of scripture, you can get a clear cut picture of what the human soul is, what the human spirit is, how the spirit is an outgrowth of the human soul, and how God put all of this in order so that humanity would be in his image after his likeness and we know that jesus canceled that penalty of death by his ransom price and so by god remembering the spirit of every human being to have ever lived come time for resurrection with new body that entity is preserved and replaced back into that brand new body and this is how it works so the soul and spirit work together to fulfill the plan of god think about it Folks, listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode or other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our podcast is subscribing to Christian Questions in your favorite podcast channels, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate us and review us. We greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, I'm a Christian and I'm angry. Now what? Good question. Talk to you then.